0: Covering Burger Chef was suggested to me by one of my longtime listeners, someone I have become friends with on social media, Karen, and so I really wanted to cover it because when suggestions come in from friends, of course you want to cover the cases. I brought it to my patrons, it was one of a long list, and they were all in for me covering this case. I noticed there were a lot of long forms on this case, and Murder Sheet was one of them. I was so happy when Anya and Kevin agreed to sit down and record an after show and also answer some questions behind the scenes as I was preparing my episode. They were fantastic and so gracious because they have done so much work on this case. You are going to hear our conversation about the case. I ask them questions. We have discussion. And I'm going to just drop you into that conversation now. Thank you so much for your support on these new aftershows. I know very few of you tell me give us less content, so hopefully this helps broaden our understanding on a couple of cases that get aftershows, because I do think this is worthwhile information, or else I wouldn't be spending my time or your time on it. So this is my conversations with Anya and Kevin from the Murder Sheet podcast. One of the things that I talked about in my Q&A from the end of last year was someone asked me, what's my professional or what background do I have that has me in the true crime space doing a podcast? And I had to answer, honestly, that I have absolutely no business being here doing what I do, no professional background. And one of the things I like about your podcast is you're the complete opposite of me. You both have backgrounds that help inform your podcast and your perspective and your ethics. So would you guys like to each tell me your background?
1: My name is Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. And I got interested in this case in particular because uh, it happened when I was a child. It was a huge major media event. And then many years later, I saw the sister of one of the victims interviewed on television. And I realized the case had not been solved. And I got sucked back into it. And so I I don't really practice criminal law, but just the fact that I have the legal background kind of helps me understand the language of the courts and the language of the systems, police officers. And I think that's really uh, helped me understand some of the stuff that's been going on behind the scenes.
2: And uh, my name's Anya Kane. I'd say my day job has nothing to do with crime either. So, very generous to think that. But uh, I actually write about retail typically, so business beat. And um, that's helped me hone some research skills, which has been helpful in researching some of the crimes that we cover, including Burger Chef. But basically, a few years ago, I really wanted to do a crime story because I felt that could be something interesting to look into. And I've always been a major uh, true crime consumer, whether it's documentaries or uh, podcasts uh, like Crimelines. And basically, Burger Chef just really stuck with me because it's such a horrible crime, these four young kids doing something so, you know, innocent, having like fast food jobs in the 70s. And the fact that it was unsolved. So I got into this case because I started uh, working on an article for Insider about the case.
0: So you were working for Insider on the case. I saw your article, your long form. It's very, very good, very detailed and very clear, which is something that is not present in this case at all. But I know that you're both, you know, interested in the case, but why take it to podcasting?
2: Over the course of me looking into, well, actually, do you want to tell her how we met?
1: Uh, We actually met because uh, Anya got interested in the case. And one of the first things a person does when they get interested in a case these days is they go on newspapers.com. You look up old newspaper articles about the but case. I do. <laughs> yeah, everybody does it. And, and you, and then you clip them. And I had at this point been meeting regularly with one of the original detectives on the case. I introduced him to newspapers.com. And he told me, you should always pay attention to who else is clipping newspaper articles about the case. Because maybe they have an innocent, innocent reason. Maybe they have some special reason why they're suddenly interested in the case. And so I happened to notice that some reporter from New York was clipping articles about the case. And so I sent her a message saying, hey, if you're interested in covering this case, uh, reach out.
2: So I did. And I think afterwards, he was like, that's a really creepy email to send somebody like what's going on. But I was just like, nice, he got my email. Good job. Like, Because <laughs> I am I love research too. And so we sort of connected, he gave me some contacts, I did the article afterwards, we sort of kept in contact and realized, oh, I think we're actually not just friends, we're in love. And now we're married. So very odd meet cute situation there. But um, I think what we were doing, you know, I wrote my article and Kevin's been doing research on the Burger Chef case for years and and represents the uh, the sister of one of the victims pro bono. And I think at that point, we were kind of like, well, what's next? What could we do to really continue to publicize the case? It's gotten some publicity, some national attention. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like a top tier in terms of publicity, a true crime case, but we were like, how can we keep this going? And also kind of inform the public about some of the research that we have done and some of the things we have found over the course of reporting this out.
1: Because one interesting thing about this case is it's gotten a fair amount of coverage over the years, but a lot of the information that's been put out there, to be blunt, just isn't accurate. You know, particular det- detectives or investigators who have their own pet theories will kind of slant things their way. And so we wanted to get the actual unbiased facts out there so people could know the real story.
2: And we we don't we don't have any technical I mean, people, can, you know, they definitely have noted that, like, you know, maybe our editing's not the best or sounds not always the best. We've tried to get better over time, but we kind of were just like, it'd be great to just put this out in in sort of an, as unbiased as possible a form and uh, just let people kind of run with that sort of clear up some misconceptions is one thing that we're especially interested with, because there's
0: so many, as you found, I'm sure, about this case. I actually find your editing totally fine, and I I am someone who hears that kind of stuff, and I have not had an issue with your audio at all. So I'm not going to say people are picky, but I'm going to say people are probably being a little picky because I didn't notice anything. So structurally, I really like how you structured it, and I think my listeners will, too, because you give the basics of the story, which they will have heard on my show, too. You give the big theories all get their own episode. And they have firsthand interviews. One of the most compelling interviews I heard, and I've told my listeners, go listen to that one, is the, the gun guy. He threw his gun out a window to just hear firsthand what that, what getting wrapped up in something like this does to a person and their life. So absolutely that, but I like how you took each theory and then you do have an episode where you're like, okay, here are all the the smaller theories that don't have quite as much. And I felt that was a very clear way to tell the story. Is there, was that very deliberate on your part? How did you decide how to tell the story? I
2: think we were sort of, without sounding too pedantic, uh, we were trying to go through it like almost like a class. Like, you know, for, you know, the first year we did it, it was like, let's cover all the basics and give air to all of the reasonable theories and sort of talk about them in depth and sort of just share what we know about them and where the gaps are, where the flaws are and where the, you know, maybe of uh, selling points are for some of these different things. And our kind of thinking with going into it in 2021 was, you know, if that was Burger Chef 101, what's Burger Chef, you know, 201 and and sort of like getting mm-hmm. a little more in depth, drilling down on some of these theories. We were fortunate to get some interviews and some uh, court documents that really sort of shed more light on some of these aspects. And so bringing that to people's attention and sort of now that we've all gone over the basics and we all have a framework that we're working from, uh, how can we get how can we understand this even better, essentially?
1: It really has been interesting to talk to the people directly involved, like the gun guy, and to get their perspective. I think nothing compares to hearing firsthand from the people who were there to hear how the case impacted them over the years.
0: You mentioned earlier about how certain detectives, they have their theory, so when they're giving an interview, that's what they're you know putting out there. I have an incident my listeners have already heard about where I filed a FOIA request on an unsolved case, and you know all about filing FOIA requests on unsolved cases, and what they send and what they don't send is always interesting, and they sent me a whole lot of stuff about one suspect and then nothing else. So no other, I don't know who else they interviewed, but man, I know every detail of what this guy said and how hard he breathed during it. Like it is detailed and then nothing on anyone else. And I thought that was an interesting choice. That was an interesting choice because then what do I have to report on? All I have is this guy. So I think that is something that really opened my eyes to how the police do control the information we have in the media. And in this case in particular, it sounds like they were incredibly tight-lipped. You know, not I don't have a newspapers.com love story, but I do love the resource. And I went on there doing my thing, going day by day from when it happened. And very early on, a Speedway patrolman told the media that they were not being told anything and they could not do their jobs as patrolmen when they don't know what they're looking for. I was like, okay, that's interesting. So then I watched all the articles, and the bulk of them were rehashing what was already published with one paragraph of new information that was released. Have you found that to continue all these years later, that they're slow to release information? Yeah, uh, in in a word,
2: yeah, definitely. There'll be occasional press conferences where they'll release a, a tidbit or whatnot, there's sort of hints given to media over time. And that typically plays into whatever the investigator who's speaking's main theory is, which is understandable. Obviously, if you have a theory that you believe in, I guess it makes sense to talk about that. But in in general, from the beginning, it's been kind of, I think the media strategy has been problematic, in particular around one suspect, Donald Forrester. His, his name and face got splashed around the media in connection with this case, and it actually we found that to this day, even though he confessed twice and recanted twice, people often assume that he did it and that police know that, and they just couldn't prove it. I think for a long time, he was kind of the guy people were talking about when they said that. They'd be like, ah, oh, they got him, but they just, they can't prosecute it. But, you know, he is in jail, so don't worry about it. And it's sort of like, no, you do need to worry about it. There's so many problems with his confessions. And so like having a lack of a media strategy around this seems to have
1: caused issues. The current investigator in charge of the case is very wary of the media. And in fact, basically, he will only agree to talk to the media if he makes some sort of special deal where the media basically turns over full control of their end product to him, which is not really the way things should be done. (laughs) That's what that's what his strategy is. And so if you approach him now and ask for an interview, he'll just flatly tell you no.
0: I have a question for you on the sketches that were then turned into busts. The eyes on those busts, I can't like they will haunt me. And if I have a night terror, it will probably be of those busts. How accurate do you think those sketches are? And do you think it was a mistake to release them as early as
1: they did? We actually talked with uh, one of the witnesses who gave the descriptions that formed the basis of those sketches and subsequent busts just a few weeks ago. And she admitted to us for the first time on the record that she deliberately changed the description of the person she saw so the sketch would not be too accurate. Because she was afraid, uh, she says, that if she gave an accurate description and someone ended up getting caught Because of it, that means that she could be in danger. So bluntly, I I don't think we find that the sketches are all that accurate at all. And I would go on to say I think it was a huge mistake to release them because they are are very vague. They're basically a young man with no beard and then a slightly older man with a beard. And if you go to a Walmart here in Indiana on a Saturday afternoon, even today, you see dozens and dozens of men who look like those sketches, so they really weren't that helpful. I think they resulted in a lot of really bad tips being generated, wasted the police's time.
2: Basically, if you if you want to find a, a white guy anywhere, he could either be the bearded man or the clean shaven man. I mean, unless he has a mustache, it excludes so few people. And I think we've discussed cases on our show where releasing sketches was really helpful and helped bring about a resolution. So we're not anti sketch, but I think in this case, as Kevin said, it was it was a disaster. And and people often sort of cite the sketches pretty extensively saying, I knew a guy who looked exactly like the bearded man. And it's like, OK, I mean, we all know a bearded man. Yeah,
0: I actually mentioned in my episode that thank goodness my dad wasn't in Indiana at the time because I like that sketch looks a little bit too much like my dad. But he also looks like all of my dad's friends. Thankfully, I mean, he was in Connecticut at the time. I can verify, well, I wasn't born yet, but I'm sure someone can verify it for me. But <laughs> I'm going to assume he wasn't in Indiana. I was kind of curious about the sketches because they did release them early on, but then they held back other things like the knife that was used. So the handle broke off and the blade was there. And the reporting was a knife, a knife, a knife. Well, then we find out okay, it's a knife, it's not a pocket knife it's not a kitchen knife. It's a knife that would have been in a sheath. Someone would have been carrying it on their belt. I mean, my dad would have been that guy too, but that also helps narrow it down a little bit. You know, that there was someone who carried this type of knife around, this type of knife around in the suburbs. You know, I think that may have been a little bit more helpful than a bearded man and a non-bearded man.
2: Honestly, some of the decisions like that really kind of uh, are a bit perplexing. Although I'll add that one issue with this, and I think this is something that you sometimes see in other cases, is the Indiana State Police were and still are the lead agency on the case. But there was, it was very much a too many cook situation from the beginning where different agencies were making different decisions and also different decisions on what to investigate and what to highlight. And sometimes it doesn't necessarily feel like there was a point person saying, okay, here's how we're going to strategize everything. I'm streamlining it all through me and I can, you know, get a bunch of resources from these different agencies, but I make the ultimate decision. There wasn't, it was more of get obsessed with one theory and kind of go off and look into that or, you know, people just, and, and I think that sort of maybe the case suffered for that as well. This
1: case, this case was marked by embarrassingly bad police work from the very beginning not just in terms of things like releasing the sketches but also in very shockingly poor crime scene management the the restaurant from which the the uh, the victims were abducted was allowed to be clean and the trash that was taken was you know disposed of the location where the bodies were discovered was trampled all over the clothes of the victims were placed all together in one bag and kind of mixed up one of the victims actually had some sort of a white substance on his face and on his clothes, and you might be asking, "Well, what is that white substance?" and we don't know because it was immediately disposed of, and not saved or tested
2: and you can say and and people do say they're like well, you know hindsight's twenty twenty right you know they didn't have DNA back then, so what were they supposed to do and it's like I think even by nineteen seventy eight there were crime scene protocols and they had fingerprints. So people making excuses nowadays, that's that's fair to a certain point, but we want to emphasize how poorly this was was handled because I think that's an important point. It wasn't a situation where they threw out key evidence later because they didn't know DNA was going to be a thing. It's like it was from the beginning it was a mess.
0: Yeah. And that's something that comes up in my episode sometimes when we're talking about a case from the late 70s and early 80s, they didn't have DNA technology, but we knew it was coming. And forensics knew that we were getting better testing for blood. We are getting better testing for semen. We are getting better testing. It was coming. And so a lot of cases in the late 70s and early 80s, they were able to test in the 90s because all the evidence was preserved really well. Because they knew it was coming. Forensics was really ramping up through the 60s. Like, If you really look at the history, it's like, it's not like 1986, all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, wait, what's this? Like, they'd been working on it for so long. Okay, the Speedway police, I'll give them, they probably didn't know. I mean, why would they know? They had three murders ever in the city or something at that point, and one of them had just happened. So it's not like they were experienced with this. But then once you get the state police and you get the FBI involved, you would have thought someone would have been like, whoa, <laughs> let's let's pause for a minute and figure this out.
2: Yes, absolutely. And it's it's so frustrating to think about because once the initial crime scene was lost, that's bad enough, right? But, the you know, the second crime scene was kind of lost. We've speak, spoken to uh, former uh, state police officials who they got involved later on. They weren't here for the sort of initial stuff, but they were kind of like brought on uh one one person who passed away recently, unfortunately, uh Tom Davison. He was a state police investigator. He was sort of like known as being, you know, good with crime scenes, kind of a technician in that sense. And they brought him in and they're like, "Can you fix this? Can you, you know, can you basically help us fix this?" And he was basically like, "The scene where the bodies are found is contaminated. The the uniforms are contaminated. There was there wasn't much he could do." And it's sort of like you wish that they could have had the foresight to bring in people like him from day one and be handling it and kind of keeping everybody away because Speedway was a very small town and and still is. but one thing we want to emphasize is that Indianapolis was basically like a really major shipping hub and and for drugs essentially uh, there was a lot of violence, there was a war between uh the biker gangs, the Sons of Silence and the uh the outlaws to me, I'm a New Yorker. So I'm like coming and being like, ah, cute little Indianapolis, like what could be going on here? And then you look at some of the coverage and you're like, oh my goodness, what wasn't going on here? I mean, it's a, it's a nightmare. There's like serial killers running around. I mean, like what, what was going on in Speedway at the time, what's going on in India at the time. And, you know, you sort of feel like there was maybe a bit of a, like a head buried in the sand attitude towards some of this kind of like, well, you know, we're just, we're just Midwest, you know, we, we're not going to pay attention to any of this. And that, I think that. That's something you kind of hear from people sometimes too, where they're like, it was so innocent until Burger Chef happened. And it's like, if you look at the newspaper coverage, that's not really, that's not really the case. But people, I think, were turning a blind eye to some of that violence.
0: That was something that came up a lot in my research is how many of the theories go back to drugs and and like proving connections to drugs, where two of the brothers of victims had drug arrests and even a robbery arrest. But, you know, the Speedway bomber, he was into drugs. It seemed like there was a lot of stories about drugs being run out of the Burger Chef. So I think you're right that there was kind of this underbelly that was being ignored, but was in. Full operation at the time.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely. That's what we really want to tap into with the show, hopefully. I mean, you know, as we continue to research, but, you know, drugs, like anything, that's a business, that's an ecosystem that, you know, operates on who are the big players, who are the medium players, who are the, you know, kids who are just selling pot. And we'd love to know a little bit more about who was, uh, you know, who was violent, who was present in Speedway, who might have been using teenagers. But then again, it's one of those cases, it's so odd, because drugs often get brought up a lot. But in talking to the people who knew the four victims, we really haven't found anything conclusive tying any of them to drugs. You know, oftentimes in the newspaper coverage, it's mentioned that manager, assistant manager, Gene Freet or Mark Flemons, the youngest victim, could have been tied to drugs. But people who knew them didn't see that. And that, of course, people can hide stuff and you know, also people kind of there's a judgment of like, oh, if they were involved in drugs, then you know it's their fault. So like, there's a victim victim blaming situation going on there too. But it is it is odd that like we can't really find anything regarding that. And there's there's so much that's just you feel like it's just below the surface. Almost, it
1: was certainly a lot of drug related violence in the Speedway area at the time. There was one particular uh, family that was running drugs through Speedway, and they have been linked to a number of murders of people who had information about them or were threatening to go to the police. They, one person was burned alive. Another person uh, accidentally fell off a highway overpass. Another person was shot to death and left in a field, which is somewhat similar to what happened to the Chef victims. So things like that stick in your mind and raise some uh, intriguing possibilities about what really happened in this case.
0: So drugs was one angle that was looked at. Another one that was in the papers early on was there were other cases that were similar. So people from Oklahoma, um, they said they were going to meet with these Oklahoma detectives and then they found no links. Do you think it's likely this was linked to something else or this was a, a one off in this situation? Actually, that's sort of
2: what prompted us to do our podcast and, and sort of keep going with it. We covered uh, Burger Chef long form, and then now we do, Uh, you know, we kind of switch back and forth between that and then weekly coverage of different fast food and restaurant homicides. Basically, we were like, let's make a crazy long spreadsheet and uh try to see if we can find any cases with similarities to Burger Chef, meaning victims are abducted and killed in a variety of different ways, you know, uh, about 20 miles from the initial crime scene. And what we found is that it's exceptionally rare. That's not an MO that you see at all, really, aside from a few cases. Most cases, uh, it, it begins and ends in the restaurant, oftentimes in the restaurant cooler. That's what you hear a lot, unfortunately. And that makes more sense because when you are attacking people at opening or close and then you herd them all into the restaurant cooler, you're kind of insulated from witnesses and and people who can help and it sort of makes sense that robbery homicides would typically play out this way but why you would kidnap four kids from a restaurant drive them 20 miles to the south and murder them by gunshot by stabbing and by some sort of blunt force in the woods just sort of defies any logic
1: so if this was linked to other homicides whoever did this did not commit any other homicides in this way again.
2: Or they had a reason to do it a different way this time and switched up their MO for reasons uh, otherwise. we With the Oklahoma cases, uh, we have looked into that. That's the Stafford Klan uh, family of serial killers that went around um, and, and are linked to a number of fast food homicides and, and other homicides. And what what they did in the sirloin stockade and the McDonald's that they're also linked to and down in Alabama, they would go in and rob the place and kill their victims, the employees in the restaurants. It's sort of like it's a tantalizing thing because the the wife in that case, uh, Verna Stafford, she basically indicated to police that she knew that her husband was in the Speedway area in November of 1978 we haven't been able to confirm that. But Indiana police were definitely interested. It's it's hard to get details about like how exactly those meetings went or what made them sort of drop that lead, because it it's kind of like, wow, could it could it be linked? But it's sort of one of those ones when you bring up to retired investigators, they're kind of like, Oh, yeah, we looked into it. And I forget what happened. But it, it turned out to not be credible. And you're like, but how did you rule it out? <laughs> you wanna you wanna get all the details, but yeah. And then and then with other unknown serial killers that could have been behind it, it's certainly possible. I Kevin and I often say this very likely could have been done by somebody who we've never heard of, <laughs> but it doesn't really fit a lot of patterns. One exception, there was a nightclub in Florida called Boccaccios, and they were robbed in 1975. Perpetrators kidnapped four employees early in the morning before it opened and drove them out about 15 miles into the Everglades and shot them all with a 38 caliber gun, which sounds kind of creepily similar to Burger Chef. And we were kind of for, like, for a minute, we were both looking at each other like, uh, what? And, we, you know, it's, it's just hard to get a lot more information about it.
0: I've covered two other crimes similar to this, where it was a retail location, looks like a robbery gone wrong. And one was the Browns Chicken Massacre outside of Chicago. And the other actually was also outside of Chicago is um, the Lane Bryant. And both of those, everyone who was in there was killed there. And there was not a a moving. And so in most crimes, when you see either bodies or people being moved, there's generally two reasons for it. One is the perpetrator needs distance between the location and the body. So that would be like Chris Watts taking his family away from the house. Like he can't have them found dead in his backyard, you know. So that is one. The other is to conceal a homicide even happened, make them poof disappear. But it doesn't sound like there was much concealment of these bodies. It's not like they were deep in the woods. Someone was walking by on their property. Yeah. So it seems like both of the, the main reasons you would transport people and or their bodies don't apply here.
2: They really don't. And and so some speculations have popped up around this. Um, And one has to do with the gentleman we spoke to who was driving erratically outside the restaurant at the time and tossed his gun in the yard. And some people have speculated that Perhaps it's not clear if there would be a line of sight there, but perhaps the robber saw police lights and freaked out, essentially. And it was just a spur of the moment thing, just horrible luck, and just kind of a panicked maybe people on drugs, maybe people who are drunk, making poor decisions that then escalate into, you know, almost an onion field esque situation where it's like, now we've committed kidnapping. We're going to be going away for a very long time. We need to eliminate the witnesses. Another scenario that's come up is basically. One of the victims was targeted, and some some interaction escalated, and they kidnapped everyone to eliminate witnesses, but also because they potentially wanted to interrogate somebody about where drugs were, or you know, uh, coerce something. But I mean, of course, this is all just complete speculation because it
0: really doesn't make a lot of sense.
1: Yeah, there's no way it really makes sense. It's just all guess, basically.
0: Yeah, because really, if it's they're like, oh no, there are police outside. Why would they then risk bringing four people out to their vehicle and taking off from there? I mean, the thing with moving them is that they just increased their risk of getting caught, like, by a lot. Because their Dunkin' Donuts right next door was still had people milling about, which we know. The, didn't they have a nightclub across the street? Like, this wasn't, like, the middle of nowhere. I mean, if they got them out the back door, I can see why nobody saw it or potentially nobody saw much. So I, you know, Alan Pruitt does come up in my episode, of course, because he gave a very interesting statement that he's recanted most of it. But I mean, he was young. He was drunk. It's been 40 years. Something I bring up in my episode is he was in jail at the time, so he didn't exactly have a chummy relationship with police. And we don't take that into account often enough when witnesses who do not have a good relationship with police or a good perception of them, how they interact. And the idea of telling them whatever they want to hear to make them stop pressuring you comes up a lot, not just with people who are involved, but also with witnesses who would be in Alan Pruitt's position. Yes.
2: Yeah. He definitely did not like police, you know, and we know that just from talking with him. He's changed his story a number of times. And I think, as you said, it's been a number of years. And also he was he was very drunk at that point. And the story he tells is so wild and sort of hard to believe, especially the latter half where he is uh, in the woods being basically chased by the murderers. But the thing that kind of keeps him, I think for us, an important figure in the case is just that he was definitely there at the time. So he definitely was there and he definitely was looking in the direction of the burger chef at the right time.
1: And so he was in a position to see exactly what happened and who did it.
2: But whether or not that's the version he gave to police early on or the version now where he just doesn't really remember it's, it's very, it's very frustrating. It's sort of, I mean, and this is sort of why the case sort of continues to really kind of grab onto people, I think, is because every time you're kind of like, all right, a witness, great, you know, then it just, you know, it goes down its own rabbit hole, and it, it gets increasingly insane, as you look into it. Unfortunately, instead of getting more clarity, it just gets murkier. And He's such an enigma in this, but he's kind of had a hard life in some respects. So stuff like that can kind of also affect your memory. We found a lot of people in this case do not have very good memories. And I don't I think at first maybe you kind of we might be like, well, that's suspicious. But I think over time we've come to realize, you know, it it was a very long time ago and things like alcohol and and drugs and trauma, trauma, exactly trauma really do erode your memory. And that's, that's understandable. And we can't
0: necessarily chalk that up to like, oh, it's a conspiracy. Everyone's pretending, you know, the whole town is in on it or something. (laughs) It was interesting as I would read something, it's like, okay, well, this person's connected to this person who's connected to this person who walked by this person at the mall one day. It's, it's so interconnected. I was like, wait a second. And I'm, I'm doing that whole, I'm putting the pieces together. And then I was like, it's a small town, calm down. It's the suburbs of Indianapolis in the 1970s, of course, people are connected. That's just how how it works.
2: Yes. Yeah, I'm from a small town in New York, so I'm like, yeah, I, could, I could see this this happening there where it's like, how do like, all these family
0: members? And it's like, that's just it's a square mile. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how that works. So I have settled myself. If I have to pick my 51% theory that I am slightly leaning towards, it's definitely... It's definitely the robbery gang theory. I'm not entirely sure it's the people who have been named. It may be some of the people who have been named because there's there's a blend of names. and But I definitely think that the tie to drugs, in my opinion, is unlikely to be tied to the people that were there that night, the four employees, but more tied to that's why they were robbing.
2: That's one of the big theories. That's actually where I was a few months ago in terms of like not this combination necessarily but something to do with with a robbery because i felt like after doing the murder sheet and looking at all of these horrible cases that resulted in really horrific homicides that just came down to a couple hundred dollars i sort of was like we've gotten in the weeds folks we've you know we're we're trying to find a drug conspiracy why can't it just be Your life doesn't mean as much as five hundred bucks, you know, to me.
1: And we actually tracked down and spoke with someone who was a victim of another one of the robberies committed by this gang. And he spoke of how they threatened to kill them and were, you know, waving guns at people, and how terrified they all were of all this. And it was really apparent these men were capable of it. If if you put a gun in someone's face and angrily scream at them that you have killed them. If they don't uh, do exactly what you say, then you're capable of committing these crimes.
2: And there was a whole thing of like, keep your heads down. Don't look at us. Don't look at us. And all it takes for that situation to go wrong is for someone to look at them. Or One of the early detectives who was spearheading that theory, Ken York, who's now passed away, unfortunately, he's really seemed to exaggerate a lot of his statements in the press about the robbery gang. We even found some affidavits we were lucky to find it an affidavit that was always characterized in the press as being like this slam dunk. He, you know, he said they were doing X and then it turns out we found the affidavit. He said they were doing Y instead, you know, it it was totally different. So it's one of those things you kind of, you're like, okay, we've got this. We are locking in on something finally. And then you, you turn the page and then it's
0: like just wind out of your sails and you're like, Oh, okay. Sometimes you look at the people who have been named in connection to this, all of them. If you took all of 10 people that have been named in connection to this and look at all of them, they all look like, uh, honestly, a bunch of losers who could barely find their way into the store, let alone do this. But then when you look at the investigation, you realize that they didn't have to be criminal masterminds to get away with this because someone came in and cleaned up their crime scene within hours. A whole bunch of people trampled over their second crime scene. They just got really lucky. That's exactly
2: it. And like, as you said, like people, sometimes I think they think, wow, uh, an unsolved mass kidnapping slash robbery slash homicide
0: with no evidence left behind.
2: These guys must have been phantoms. They must have been Hannibal Lecter, just a genius of crime. And and it's like they basically, you know, every break they could have gotten, they basically got. And unfortunately, there's so many different theories that it's not really that super relevant if someone comes forward right now saying, Oh well, my my stepdad probably did it. He he would always talk about the case because I mean a lot of people's stepdads could have done it, a lot of people's cousins could have done it, a lot of people, there's a lot of bad people out there who were violent towards their families or towards others and maybe look good as a result. But this is what you've learned, I'm sure, you know, doing a, a podcast on crime is that there's so many not very nice people out there. Who could be good for something but that doesn't mean they're guilty of the crime right. and you need a lot more
0: than that to go with that well it's one of the things that we see a lot in wrongful convictions is they're like well the guy looked good for it because he had this rap sheet and blah blah and it's like well yeah the people on the police radar are criminals like that is how that that is where they're looking they're looking into similar crimes so when you're like oh look the suspects look at this rap sheet the suspects have rap sheets because you're looking at old cases to build suspects it's like you're causing it. And I don't know, it's one of those things that I probably didn't think about at all when I started podcasting. And now I read one quote and I'm like, so how true is that? Like, wh- what are you basing that on? So sometimes I feel like my scripts are like, well, apparently, reportedly, allegedly, like, that was like every sentence, because you don't know. And I can't, you can't always vet all the information yourself, especially if nobody's releasing the information.
1: I have to say my trust in what I read about crimes in particular has really taken a beating since I started researching this case, because I see the wide gulf between what actually happened and then what the police or others tell you about it, because they're trying to tailor it to fit their own theories. They're trying to tell it in a way to cover up any mistakes they may have made. And it is just astonishing how different reality is from what you might read in the paper.
2: And I think sometimes people are like, well, you guys are just anti-law enforcement, you're anti this or that. And it's like, we're just, you know, just like any person in any job, whether it's media or whatever, there's going to be people who are, they have an agenda and and that's what they're going to come to the press with. And of course, sometimes that agenda is perfectly reasonable. And that's like, let's catch these guys. And sometimes the agenda is, well, there's a few competing theories within my agency and I want to get ahead of the other two guys. And sometimes it's, you know, different agencies are just sort of feuding almost. And you don't know what you don't know. And it could be very complicated behind the scenes. There are definitely cases out there where police are very confident that they know what happened or they know who did something and they truly cannot prove it. It's not a prosecutable case, even if they mm-hmm. have that general like idea of like, yeah, we got this. We just we can't prove it. This is not one of those cases. And I would say if you hear that about a case your red flags should go up and you should look into it a little bit more. And maybe it is, but maybe, maybe it's just a mess and you can't really make any conclusions on it. And I think that kind of attitude, the whole like, we know who did it, but we can't prove it. When you put that out there, it is corrosive because maybe maybe there is somebody with actually super relevant information, but they kind of are like, uh, that's not relevant because I know that they already know who did it and it wasn't the guy I'm aware of. It encourages silence. It's like, stop talking about it. We already, you know, we already know who did it. So if anything, we hope that our podcast and, and coverage from from Crime Lines and other podcasts can just encourage people to think about Burger Chef in a little bit of a different way and maybe crimes in general in a different way.
1: And I do want to say we've talked a lot uh, about how bad, frankly, a lot of the police work has been on this case. But there were some detectives and investigators on this case who did their absolute best and who cared deeply about it. Anya earlier mentioned Tom Davidson of the Indiana State Police, who did his best with the evidence he had. Uh, By the time he got to it, it had been really hopelessly compromised. Another person that comes to mind is retired Indiana State Trooper Jim Kramer, who cared very, very deeply about this case. I know he still thinks about it every day. And if something horrible happened to someone in my family, I would hope that men like uh, Kramer or Davidson would uh, take charge of the investigation because those two men were like everything you could hope for in a police investigator. Unfortunately, they were the exceptions in the investigation of this case. But I do want to give them credit for their work.
2: That's true. And and yeah, we don't want to sound like we're just entirely like it's not like everyone involved who touched this was a mess. It's just a lot of. A lot of the people who unfortunately got a first crack at it mess things up. It, you don't get any do-overs with a crime scene.
0: There are so many weird things on this, but you know how sometimes your brain latches onto one really, one thing and you can't get it out? My current one is the early reporting that Mark Flemens may have been beaten or he may have died in an accident. But then I'm doing, one of the last things I do, I'm researching is a Google search to get more recent articles and all of a sudden i see that he was beaten with a chain being said by an by an investigator where did this chain come in it came out of nowhere to me the chain aspect we've heard that there were
2: potentially injuries around his eyes that uh like little little um nicks or cuts almost that could have indicated that he was hit in the face with like what's been described to us as potentially brass knuckle, like a brass knuckle punch almost. Uh, Others have said the tree would have done that. The chain, I guess if you wrapped it around your hand, but I think whenever we brought up the chain to people who were familiar with the photos, they kind of were like, nah. It's really tragic because it's been described to us that he almost might've survived had he landed differently and he wouldn't have asphyxiated. He might've just been knocked unconscious and then woken up. So it's almost like a, A fluke that he died, unfortunately. So
1: the idea that he may have ran into the branch of a tree, the theory is that the killers executed three of the four. Mark tried to escape and ran off and accidentally ran into a a tree branch or something. And the the killers didn't even know that. They just thought, he's away. We can't find him in the dark. We got to get out of here before someone else comes. And they may have left without even knowing. That uh, that was what happened, there wasn't any bits of wood found on his face, which were debris which you might expect if he ran into a tree, but then on the other hand, we know uh, the evidence was not really processed well, so who knows what could have happened
0: so my other question that's kind of on a detail about the case is about the van. they announced pretty early on they were they thought they were transported in a van. Do you know where that comes from? Because I know there were statements later about a van, but that was already in the newspaper. So people could have just read the Indianapolis Star and gotten that detail.
1: Uh, There were some witnesses pretty early on who reported seeing a couple of vehicles moving at high speeds through different neighborhoods between the, the abduction site and the murder site. And they described one of those vehicles as being a van. And there was also reports of uh, a van being seen in the vicinity of the murder site, not logged after the murders. So those initial uh, witness descriptions were the source of that.
0: And a van would make sense because you have four people and then you have two to three additional people. And what kind of vehicle are you going to fit all those people in? Um, And then how are you going to really control them all unless you take multiple vehicles, which... Brings us to Jane's car, which I don't even know if I have the brain power to get into. Like, (laughs) did they they drive that away and dump it and then come back with their vehicle to pick everybody up? Which, how did they control everybody during this time? Like, I I get going on it and I could probably write like a movie plot based on all my thoughts on how this could have possibly happened. But none of them are based in any fact.
1: Yeah, Jane's car was found uh, just a couple of miles away from the restaurant. It was abandoned near a park, and the park was within eyesight of the Speedway police station. So that's very peculiar. That'd be Uh, the
0: last place I would want to drop off a car if I stole it or if I was committing a
1: crime. And for what it's worth, Jane had the key to the car in her uh, coat pocket when her body was discovered. We do know, by an interesting coincidence, Jane's car had been serviced very recently, within a day or two of the murders and at that time the mileage was recorded and so we know that the car when it was discovered after the murders it had not traveled enough miles to have made it to the murder scene and back so it was likely just driven to where it was dumped from the restaurant and abandoned and yeah who knows did she travel with just one of the uh, abductors were all the victims somehow forced into that one small car, it's it doesn't make any sense. Why didn't they, since they were within eyesight of the police station, why didn't any of the victims try to make a fuss or call for help? And it was on a residential street as well, where, uh, right across the street from houses. I, I wish I knew.
2: So there was early news reports indicating that police felt that the victims had been basically abducted from the restaurant in Jane's Vega car. And uh driven tight fit. <laughs> yeah, very tight fit. And they basically, I think they discussed like, oh, the way the seats are moved, here's where we think everyone sat. I don't know exactly how they could determine that, frankly. But um, and then, and that almost there was some sort of additional kidnapping vehicle parked at Leonard Park, which is the park we're discussing, and uh they were forced out there, put in the van, and then they drove to uh Johnson County where they were murdered. But what kind of crime or incident is happening where you are robbing or doing a drug deal or, or confronting someone at the burger chef, but you're not going to just drive up there with your car, you're going to park it at Leonard and then have to improvise. Sometimes I get, you know, you you kind of, you know, like, why would people do this? But I mean, I I don't think we're dealing with rational people, to be honest. I don't think it's a rational crime. I think, like, there seems to almost be an element of like panic in it of like, okay, let's do this now and let's go to here. And like, and maybe, maybe people are not on the same page. Maybe some people think they're participating in a shakedown or an abduction. And then other people have other ideas once they get to Johnson County about what needs to happen. But yeah, it really, it's hard to kind of conceptualize a situation where you're trying to make sense of this, because not only is it such a senseless and brutal crime, but a lot of the decisions just kind of don't make any sense from a, strategic or rational point of view.
0: Yeah, one of the things that comes up is, was one of them targeted? Were more than one of them targeted? It's much easier to target somebody when they're by themselves. You know, Mark Flemons walked to and from work. I know he had a friend walking with him that day, but a killer wouldn't know that. So if they wanted to rough him up, if they wanted to abduct him, they could have just assumed he was walking home at one in the morning by himself. Jane drove herself. I don't know how the other two were getting home, if their parents were picking them up or what, but it's the same thing. They they had periods where they'd be alone. So I don't think any one person was targeted in my in my view. I don't feel like this was targeted. And I don't feel like the group of them would have had anything in common that would have caused someone to target them as a group. Even if you're talking, okay, well, they were after two or three of them what does like a 20-year-old assistant manager have in common with a 16-year-old? You know, I don't see much of a connection. It doesn't sound like they were friends outside of work. Like they didn't they didn't go to the same schools. They didn't hang out. I think your explanation of they were making impulsive in-the-moment decisions between two or three people who may not have been on the same page. And that's why it feels like a bunch of very scattered decisions. Yeah. And like if I'm one of the
2: robbers or one of the people who are involved in this and I'm thinking, you know, we're going to just tie them up in the woods and then leave. And I'm not going to kill anyone over this, obviously. And then the person who maybe is more senior than I or is is making other decisions or just start shooting. I I will note that one theory uh, that has been brought up and was printed in some early coverage was basically that somehow and we've never we've never run this down. So we're not going to say this is at all conclusive that there were basically drugs being sold out of the restaurant. We got some reports basically that Speedway police were looking into it and were investigating it a few months before the murders happened. We've never been able to confirm that. We've never been able to really hear from anyone that conclusively said, yes, I bought drugs at the Burger Chef. That's what they were known for or anything like that. Uh, it was a corporate owned restaurant also. So that kind of, it's not like it was like some sketchy franchisee who was running the show, but that would kind of make some sense just from the perspective of like oh the drugs have gone missing that we were supposed to pick up where are they nobody knows on staff because they're not involved with it so that's why things escalate so it makes some sense in that regard but otherwise again this it's one of those things like you could say something that makes perfect sense but there's no proof for it so what you know what does it
0: matter <laughs> what is like the number one either misconception or thing that's just reported incorrectly that you think is out there What's like the number one that you would want to clear up?
2: Just this is a this is one just from a purely factual standpoint. And I would just very much stress uh, Ruth. And, and, and then I'll get i will get into more of the case wide thing. But Ruth Shelton was only 17 when she was killed. It's been widely reported that she was 18. And that's a, a bit upsetting for family and friends to read just because she was really looking forward to turning 18 that December. And so I would just urge people, you know, I know it's been misprinted out there, but, you know, she was 17. I mean, I'm guilty. I made a I made an error in in my one of my articles that was a roundup of fast food related crimes. So,
1: yeah, Ruth was very excited about turning 18. It was a big milestone. She was going to become an adult and she didn't quite make it. She was a couple of weeks away from her uh, 18th birthday.
2: So that, that's a detail. But then with. with the wider point that i think i think you've totally picked up on and we're so excited to be talking to you about this and i think a lot of people have picked up on more recently is just that it's not solved it's not all but solved it's totally unsolved we have no idea who did it there are some theories with strengths and that they should be they should certainly be regarded as such strong theories and discussed but to say that the police know who did it and they just can't prove it is nonsense. And it doesn't help to put out narratives like that, because it sort of encourages silence and encourages complacency from the public of people saying, well, I can't do anything about that, because they know who did it, they just can't prove it. You know, that's, that's the police's job. And no, it's, it's people who were in the area at the time might have relevant information about what happened, and they should be really encouraged to come forward, even if they're not certain about it even if they're not sure that it's relevant.
1: And along those lines, we mentioned Donald Forrester confessed to the murders. At the time he confessed, his picture was in the paper. There were big headlines about it. And even within the last few years, there have been big magazine stories about how, at oh, the case is solved. Donald Forrester did it. They just couldn't prove it. And Forrester's confession, for whatever reason, they never publicized the actual contents of the confession. But it is so full of basic factual errors that it just cannot be taken seriously one example of many is he claims he stabbed he was the one who stabbed to death jane Freed. he says he stabbed her in the legs and she was not stabbed in the leg she was stabbed in the heart so people should not take that seriously and Forster was an awful man he was a monster he was guilty of many things he deserved to die in prison which he did but he did not commit the purposeful murders.
2: I think maybe the takeaway that hopefully people will will kind of maybe take with them into just how they think about crimes in general is that there can be strong theories but if something is not prosecuted and not adjudicated properly you know sometimes it's just spin sometimes it's just spin when they come out and say we we can't do anything about it and maybe maybe you should m- dig a little bit deeper and uh don't take people's word for stuff in general with true crime.
0: Along the lines of not thinking it's solved, one of the biggest concerns I have with people thinking Forrester did it is that is dead. The robbery gang did it. Well, half of them are dead. Of the people named, a lot of them have died. They weren't living pure and clean lives, so a lot of them died relatively young as well. But the people who did this, they could be in their 60s or 70s right now. They could still very well be alive and out there. And when you think, oh, well, they, they know who did it, but he died, that closes the book. People move on. And that is not where we are at all. And maybe one of those people who's been named who's died was involved, but we do know there were at least two or three there. And then possibly, even if you take all the statements together and you're talking about a robbery group, you're looking more at like five to seven conspirators. That's a lot of people. A lot of people who could still be alive and still see justice for this case. So what would you like to see next happen in the investigation that would get us closer to justice? The ISP needs
2: to put its money where its mouth is in terms of supporting some of these cold cases and devoting resources and time to them.
1: There are so many cases out there that don't get any attention at all. Burger Chef gets a ton of attention, but there are other people whose lives matter just as much as Danny Davis, Mark Flemons, Jane Freet, and Ruth Shelton. And their lives matter, and they deserve justice as well. Uh, We would love to see the formation of a cold case squad that focuses on bringing closure and justice to these families. Yeah,
2: permanent cold case squad with money... (laughs) resources, a budget, and dedicated investigators who have experience with uh, homicides and and missing persons cases, and that they are enabled to, uh, you know, just be set up. And, you know, it's Indiana, so there's a lot of politicians, uh, you know, being a right wing state, that sort of maybe espouse support for law enforcement. Well, this is one area where they can do that, and set up a cold case squad for ISP and really prioritize that and they could look at Burger Chef and other cases, and I think that would give us a lot more confidence in what needs to happen. To be totally frank, we're not super confident in the current investigator who has this. on, on the side of uh, the public and what listeners can do, um, taking away that we don't know who did this is super important. But also, you know, I think for anyone who was perhaps familiar with Indianapolis in 1978 or specifically the West Side. And specifically Speedway uh, or its surrounding suburbs, you know, maybe talk with people who you knew back then or discuss it and, and sort of have those conversations. And, you know, if you, if you heard stuff about Speedway or if you heard stuff about that burger chef or just, you know, what it was like in the area, you know, feel free to uh, reach out to us at Murder Sheet or just murdersheet at gmail.com. Uh, you can send us, even if you don't know anything about the crime, but you just know the area, you know, we're piecing together information on that. And you know, just kind of discuss it, keep the story out there and and just remember that you know there were four kids four really you know young people who were just starting out their lives and had that all taken away from them and all taken away from their families and you know it's just it's a you know keep them in your minds as we go forward because you know that's the reason why why we should care about this because these these kids deserved so much more uh from from life and then certainly
0: from the investigation that has followed tell me more about what are you doing right now with murder sheet and what's coming up next
2: what are we doing uh (laughs) we we basically every year we like every year we've been doing it for two years so for two (laughs) years for for our our entire existence we and this is what we're sort of thinking of going forward in november we're going to try to cover burger chef and do a couple of episodes whatever we have that's new and relevant and then basically for the rest of the year we're kind of odd. We don't really, we don't really do a crime of the week necessarily uh, all the time, although that's often what we are doing, like a new case every week. Sometimes we'll do kind of get on a, a, a small mini series essentially where we'll kind of put something together. So we sort of alternate, kind of mix it up. And we also also cover the Delphi case, which is another Indiana case that is incredibly tragic and something because we're We live here and we are interested in it. We just started covering it, even though it doesn't really, you know, it's not a restaurant case, obviously.
1: Uh, uh, One case we covered last year was the case of a family who traveled along the western part of the United States robbing donut shops and then raping and murdering the women who work inside those shops. And uh, so we're actually featured and Wondery has just started a new podcast about that case. And so now we're going to do a few more weeks of episodes about that, because these men who did, did these awful crimes, they brought their wives with them along for the ride. And they also brought their kids and grandkids. And so we have got in touch with one of the kids who was there for all of this. He was like five or six at the time. And we thought it would be interesting to hear what is that like to be traveling around the country and seeing your parents and grandparents commit these heinous acts. And then what happens to you afterwards when your entire family is justifiably incarcerated? What happens to you? Where do you go? And how do you wake up and try to live a normal life afterwards? So that would be where our next few episodes will be about.
2: And then actually, this is sort of inspired by you and crime lines. But, you know, you do really great work on oftentimes cases that have not, for whatever reason, gotten the coverage that they deserve. And one thing that we sort of, you know, started in sort of a fever dream was basically looking through Name is Charlie Project, some of those great sites that compile uh, information around some of these cases, I'm just trying to find cases that has something to do with restaurants. Oftentimes, people are last sighted at a restaurant. And, you know, there's not really other podcast episodes or even a lot of the news coverage of some of these. And we've been basically reaching out to those law enforcement agencies that have those cases and basically saying, like, come on the show. Tell us about what you can about this case. Let's get it out there. And uh, we've gotten some responses so far that we're very heartened by and and hopefully can move forward with some of those, do some interviews and just sort of some of these cases. You read the details and it really just sounds like a heartbreaking situation or you just want to know more. And hopefully, um, we're not we're not a giant podcast, so I I don't I don't kid ourselves thinking, you know, we're gonna bring these into the mainstream or something. But hopefully, it'll just be something to. I hate reading about uh, a case and there's you know no answers and also just no one's talking about it. I just think that that breaks my heart. And hopefully, we can do some good with that going forward. So those are those are some of the projects that we're really excited about going into. Or, you know, now that we're in 2022, right. how is it this year already? I don't even know. But <laughs>
0: 2020 took forever. And then 2021 was gone in a blink. But, yeah. you know, here we are. So, no, I was so great to talk to you both. I'm glad you agreed. Sometimes it's a little nerve wracking, like cold contacting someone and being like, hey, you want to you want to collab on something that you spent years and years working on and I'm doing for a week. Like, and you know, <laughs> But I, I appreciate all of your input. And putting up with my Twitter DMs as I'm I'm getting like super confused. And I think one DM I sent you, you know, was like, what about this? And then on the timeline, and then I get this huge response. And I'm like, oh, man, I send you like, I'm like, look, I peeled back a layer. And you're like, here's five more. (laughs) It it was um, definitely I appreciate you being so willing to talk to me about stuff.
2: I'm, I'm going to say this, Charlie. I'm not just, I'm not like, we're not just being nice. Like the questions you were sending it, we were both like, basically like screaming at each other. Like she gets it. She's asking all the right questions. We didn't want to sound like psychopath. When you first reached out to us, we were like, should we send her a bunch of like bullet points? And then we're like, we just, you know, I, I listen to your show. I know how smart you are. I know how much you put into this show. And I'm like, she's gonna she's gonna figure it out and then the questions you were asking were like oh my god this is perfect because it's such an overwhelming case but Mm -hmm. the the questions you were asking i thought were really like informed and like kind of skeptical of the narrative we don't feel territorial about burger chef at all as far as we're Mm -hmm. concerned like people should cite us you know if you cite our information or whatever and you want to do a deep dive in the case we are happy to talk to people about it anytime because that's all we, we want we know that's what Kevin's client, the sister of one of the victims, wants is just people to to know about it essentially and, and sort of talk about it in a reasonable and fact-informed
0: way. I will make sure that I leave all of your contact information, your Twitter handles and all that in the show notes so that my listeners can find you. So thank you again for coming on. Thank, thank you, you, Charlie. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok.